So uh, we're continuing with our series in Genesis 2, and we're looking at the Garden of Eden. We're going to go back to the Garden of Eden. And as I was preparing this, I was thinking uh, no one has kind of captured the beauty of the Garden of Eden in literature, I think, as well as Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings, when he talks about uh, the Shire and Bag Ends. And, uh, you know, he was really picking up on biblical themes when he wrote his trilogy uh, with the, The Lord of the Rings. And here's one thing that he... Uh, says uh, about us, kind of picking up on the Garden of Eden. He says, we all long for Eden and we're constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature at its best and least corrupted is still soaked with a sense of exile. And uh, his mate, uh, Tolkien's mate, C.S. Lewis, of course, also a fantasy writer, Oxford Don, uh, they met together in a group called the Inklings. He picks up on a similar theme when he says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Uh, This sense of being exiled out of the Garden of Eden. Uh, St. Augustine in the 5th century, he he puts it in, in a prayer. He says, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. And so this morning we're going to go back to the Garden of Eden to look at what it was that we were made for, what it was that everyone is longing for. And as we go through it, Genesis chapter 2, I want to try and show you three things in this story. And the first is the meaning of God's garden. And then we're going to look at our calling in God's garden. And then finally, how we can fulfill our calling in God's garden. Now, It might be a bit of hard work this morning, and I apologize for that if that's the case. But you know what? Uh, They say that, you know, you don't find treasure at the mouth of a cave. Uh, You know, you've got to go digging, and it's hard work. And so maybe we're going to do some of that this morning. But firstly, let's let's look. Let's look at the meaning of God's garden. And and what I want to do this morning is show you something that I've just discovered only uh, recently, in in recent months, in recent years, and, and that is how the... Garden, the Garden of Eden is presented to us like a temple, like a garden temple. And, and you see this in lots of different ways in the imagery, but where I see it most clearly is with these rivers that are flowing out of the garden. Did you notice in verse 9 it says, A river flows out of Eden to water the garden. And it talks about how the river flows. Do you notice how he spends so much time, there's like four verses just talking about these rivers that, that flow, verse 11 and verse 13 and verse 14. Uh, and, and the reason, that the way that this becomes temple imagery is if you know the uh, Ezekiel 47, a vision that Ezekiel has in 47, where he sees streams of living water flowing out of, not out of a garden, but out of a temple. And it flows out of the threshold. This, um, first it's ankle deep, then it's knee deep, then it's waist deep, and then it's a river that no one can cross. And what Ezekiel is doing in chapter 47 is he's picking up on this imagery of the river of life, rivers of life pouring out of the Garden of Eden. And did you notice actually in our second reading, the very last chapter of the Bible, chapter 22. So here it is at the beginning. And here it is at the end that, again, there's this river that's flowing out of the new Jerusalem. It says that in Revelation 22 that a tree of life with 
its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And so um, this is the new Jerusalem where the temple was. Not only is there a river that's flowing out, but there's this tree, this tree of life, which is the same thing as in the Garden of Eden. It was verse 9, filled with trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge. And these trees are for the healing of the nations. But the imagery of this um, Eden and this temple imagery uh, keeps stacking up because um, there's a scholar, New Testament scholar, G.K. Beale, uh, who points out that, um, do you know, like in the, in the temple there was this candle called the menorah? Have you, have you seen one of those Jewish candles with the seven branches? Well, G.K. Beale points out that actually that... Uh, imagery of the seven branches is actually picking up on the image of the tree of life. This, uh, where there was gold as well. Uh, you see this description of gold in, I think it's in verse 11. And this menorah was to pick up on the tree of life and it would stand outside the holy of holies and the, it was to represent the light of God's blessing and God's countenance shining upon his people. And so there's all this imagery of this Eden being like a temple and the temple being like the Garden of Eden. One of the other ways is um, after they fall um, on the east. Uh, by the way, the, um, the entrance to the Garden of Eden was facing east, which is what that way. Uh, and, and so it is for the temple. The temple was also facing east. What's going on here? Why is there all this imagery of likening the Garden of Eden to a temple? Well, the temple was the very dwelling place of God. And why does he spend so much time describing um, rivers? You know, in our scientific minds, we, we sort of read it and go, yeah, okay, fine, there were rivers. Can, can we move on? Uh, why does the author spend so much time describing these rivers? Well, this is poetry. This is imagery of the abundance of God's presence, the life-giving presence and the, and the life that flows out of God and flows out of the garden to fill the whole earth where God dwells. One of the other um, pieces of scripture that G.K. Bill picks up on is that when it says in Genesis 3 that you see God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, he says the same thing that he wants to walk amongst his people in the temple and that was the dwelling place of God. And so there's this picture of abundant life flowing out of the temple. And, and do you know what? In the ancient Near East, right, there were temples everywhere. The pagans had temples a dime a dozen. But do you know what they put in the temple, in these temples? They put images of the gods, right? You go into the temple, even today, I'm assuming, you go into a temple, and what do you see? You see images of the god. Well, how does that apply in the Garden of Eden? What did God put in the Garden of Eden? He put images of God. He put Adam and Eve, who were made in the image and likeness of God, these representations of God who were made in his glorious image. And so Adam and Eve, they're like the first king. Adam is like the first king, and Eve is like the first queen. Adam is like the first priest, and Eve the first priestess. And what's their job? Well, Genesis 1.28, it says... Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That was their job in the temple, to grow the temple and to see God's presence spread throughout the world. How are they going to do it? 
How are they going to grow the temple? How are they going to grow this garden? Well, it's by having kids. Be fruitful and multiply. Kids who are made in the image of likeness and likeness of God, who then go on and have kids who are made in the image and likeness of God, and so that they can multiply and fill the whole earth with this garden that's filled with the glory of God and the images of God. So it's almost like if you imagine a newlywed couple moving into a small house and then they start having kids and then the kids start to grow up and so what do they have to do? They have to build a bigger house. Except now we've got this image in the Garden of Eden. I can see some chuckles with some people who are actually doing, are in the middle of doing that right now. Uh, but, but this is the image of Adam and Eve in this garden temple that the idea is that they grow this garden until it fills the whole earth. That's our purpose. That's our calling. And, and it's meant to um, be beautiful and filled with these glorious images. And, and so if Adam and Eve were to fill their, uh, fulfill their calling, then that is what would happen. But that's not what happened. That isn't what happened, is it? They didn't fulfill their calling. They failed in their task. And so you know what? The rest of the Bible story, uh, after Adam and Eve failed, is about how God is going to fulfill that original call to restore the broken image in humans and to grow this garden and to rebuild this temple so that it covers the whole earth. And do you know how he's going to do it? He's going to do it through the last Adam, someone who was faithful to his calling, someone who would grow God's garden and build God's temple through his death. And we're going to talk about that more later in the sermon. So what does all this mean for us? I, I want to move from the meaning of God's garden now to our calling in God's garden. And our calling is there in verse 28. God says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Um, you get a, um, another take on what our calling is in Genesis 2 verse 15. Uh, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to do what? It says to till it and to keep it. Um, other translations say uh, to work the garden and to guard it, to work it and to guard it. So uh, in the same way that uh, the spirit hovered over a dark and formless void in Genesis 1. And then God, with his voice, brought order out of creation, out of chaos. So he says to the people now made in his image, that's what I want you to do. I want you to take the raw material in the world, the chaos in this world, and as my image bearers, your calling is to go out into the world and find a patch of chaos and to bring order out of chaos. This is called the cultural mandate. This is what we were made to do. And so um, music, for example, is taking the raw material of sound and bringing order out of chaos, arranging it into something beautiful and something life-giving. Um, storytelling is taking the raw material of words and of human experience and bringing order out of chaos and arranging it into something that makes sense of human experience. Oftentimes, parenting is taking the chaos of all the mess on the floor and putting it back on the shelf, uh, let alone the chaos in our young ones' hearts and, and, and through God's word and in the power of the Spirit and our prayers, bringing order into the chaos of people's hearts to form them back into the image of God and into the likeness of Christ. This, this, is, this is our calling. It, it might 
be through architecture, it might be through um, medicine or health, it might be through being a teacher, Uh, it might be blue-collar work, it might be white-collar work, but in the end, it's all the same and the task is the same. The task is to take some bit of chaos of the human experience and to, um, through God's word and in the power of his spirit, to bring order out of chaos so that it can become life-giving and enriching for all. But how do we actually do that? Because Dorothy Sayers um, was a poet and an author, and, and she once said, the habit of thinking about work as just something that one does to make money is so ingrained in us that we can scarcely imagine what a revolutionary change it would be to think instead in terms of the work done. It's like we were saying a few weeks ago, we've become curved in on ourselves and and the work has become something that that has become self-serving. Now, I'm not pointing any fingers uh, on this point, uh, but it's, it's a picking on an instance to make a general point. So, for example, certainly when I was in high school, you know, the, the reason that you would aspire to become a doctor often was not so much to relieve suffering in the world, but because of the significance and the status and the security that that kind of job would provide. Are you, are you catching my drift here? Or, or the reason that you might want to aspire to become a lawyer is not so much uh, out of a passion for bringing justice in God's world, but again, because of the sense of significance and status and security that that kind of job would bring. Do, do you see how we can, we've turned work into something that that's about, can be about taking because of some emptiness rather than a fullness where we give? Here's the point, right? This picture of the rivers flowing out of the garden is that just as life flows out of God's presence in the garden to to heal the nation. So our mission in the world needs to flow out of the life-giving waters of his spirit being poured out upon us. But too often what we do is that we do our work either for the self or a mission is based on our own idealism, our own kind of high ideals. And how many people have have gone out with a, and this happens in the church all the time, but it happens in so many ways of like, we're going to change the world, we, there's so much need out there, and it's based on idealism and not on um, being filled with the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, and it ends up being bitter, broken, and burned out. Have you seen that happen again and again? No, the image of the Garden of Eden is that we were made to dwell in the life-giving presence of God and his life-giving streams because the chaos and the disorder in the world are far too great for us to meet on our own. And so the idea is that as we go out uh, as his disciples to bring order out of chaos, we're constantly coming back to be filled with the power of his Holy Spirit and listen to his life-giving word to us so that we're filled again because he has the resources that are more than enough to match the needs in the world. Friends, this is why we're becoming a praying church. This is why we need to be reminded that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit and we need to be filled with life-giving waters again and again and again to keep coming back to be filled. This is why you need to come to church every Sunday. This is why we need Bible studies and small groups to be filled. This is why we need day and night like Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who meditates on God's word 
day and night. They are like one planted by streams of living water. It's why Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for they will receive the kingdom of God. And so we go out and we serve, but we come back to be filled with life-giving water. And the thing that gives me nightmares is that our gatherings would be a place where people come empty and they leave empty. This is what makes our pre-service prayer meeting so important because I don't know about you, but I just so often feel empty and dry and I need to come back to feed and be filled with the living water by His Holy Spirit, through His Word, through the fellowship of the saints. You know what? Psalm 36 picks up on this imagery. The psalmist says, How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. You know, in Hebrew, that word delights is Edens, literally Edens. You give them drink from the river of your Edens. For with you is the fountain of life. And in your light do we see light. Oh, that we would become a praying church. Oh, that we would reach the fullness of what it means for us to be the temple of the living God. I love the image in Revelation 1 and 2 where the the picture is of Jesus walking amongst the seven lampstands and the seven lampstands of the church where Jesus, the fountain of life, touches our hearts and our minds and our souls to fill us and to refresh us for a dry and dark world. But too often in our weakness, in our weariness, we, we don't realize there's an abundant supply. And we turn away to weak and miserable things. This is what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. He says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden when they took the fruit. from the the tree that God said if they took from it, they would surely die. They turned away from the fountain of living water to try and do life on their own. And so Adam failed in his job. His job was to keep drinking from this fount of living water to be filled and for those rivers of water to flow through him to fill the whole world. But he failed in his task. But you know what? That's not the only thing he failed in. Uh, This um, scholar Beale points out that uh, the language in Genesis 2.15 where it says Adam's job was uh, to to guard it and to, sorry, to work it and to keep it. What Moses does is that he uses that phrase uh, that Adam was supposed to guard it and to keep it and he actually applies it to the priest's job in the temple. Uh, That's in Numbers 18 verses 5 and 6. He uses the same language and he says the priest's job in the temple is to guard and to keep the temple. In other words, the role of the priest was to keep the temple pure, right? It was a holy place, the holy of holies, the dwelling place of God, and the, and the priest's job was to ensure that no unclean or corrupt thing was allowed to come into the temple. So, for example, if you read the food laws in Leviticus, one unclean animal was a snake, And so if a snake was to come into the temple, the role of the priests was to kill it and to kick it out. 
So how is like that the role of Adam and Eve in the garden? Where Adam says to subdue the garden and to guard it and to keep it. If, hypothetically speaking, a snake were to come into the Garden of Eden, what might Adam's job be when that snake comes in? Is to kill it and to kick it out. To take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. God said to me, you shall not eat from that tree. If you eat from it, you will surely die. And so when the snake comes, the father of lies and says, you shall not die... The role of Adam and Eve was to say, take out the sword of the spirit and say, no, God said you will die and to cut off the snake and to kick it out of the garden. But he didn't do that, did he? What did he do? What did they do? They listened to the snake, the father of lies, and they allowed this unclean demonic thing into the garden. And by listening to him, they became unclean and the whole world became corrupt because they didn't do their job. And because of their corruption, what happened? They were cast out of the garden paradise. And so the question now is, how do we get back in? How can we fulfill our calling to guard God's garden and to grow God's garden until it covers the whole earth? Well, you know, when the snake came to the first Adam, he came to him in a beautiful garden paradise, right? Because that's what God had made. But you know, when the snake came to the last Adam, he didn't come to him in a beautiful garden. Where did he come to meet the last Adam? In a desert. Because that's what had become of God's beautiful garden because the first Adam had failed in his task. The snake came to meet the last Adam in a desert. So instead of being a glorious garden flowing with streams of living water filled with the glorious images of God, what happened now? It was a desert that was filled with snakes, Satan, sin and death, corrupt, polluted, unclean, demonic. But the good news is that the last Adam, Jesus, flourished where the first Adam failed. When Satan came to Jesus in the desert, he was tempting him like Adam to turn away from God and to do life on his own. Can you remember the first temptation that the snake brought to him? It was to turn stones into bread. And essentially what he was saying is, you can do life without God. You can turn away from the fountain of living water, the bread of heaven, and you can do this on your own. And what did the last Adam do? He took up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and he quoted Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 13 to the snake. And he said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every breath that comes from the mouth of God. See, unlike the first Adam, Jesus never turned away from the fountains of living water. And so he was always overflowing with life and light and love wherever he went. But then in Luke 4, verse 13 towards the end of this temptation narrative in the desert, it says, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left Jesus until an opportune time. So the devil was constantly trying to tempt him to turn away from the fountain of living water. But it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of his spirit. 
And then he says, he gets up in the synagogue and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Even in uh, Acts chapter 2, where it picks up on the prophecy of Joel, where it says, my spirit, I will pour out my spirit. That's the language of water. Do you see? The water that was in Genesis 2, the life-giving water. Jesus was filled with the life-giving water of the Holy Spirit. And it's almost as if when he tells this parable in Luke 11 that I'll share with you in a moment. It's almost as if Jesus is talking about everything that Adam lost in the garden when he failed to subdue the snake and to guard the garden. He tells this parable in Luke eleven twenty one. He says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. See, Adam was supposed to guard God's house. He was supposed to subdue the snake. But then he failed. And he allowed the strong man, Satan, to come in and to plunder everything, to turn this beautiful garden into a desert. Something unclean and corrupt had been allowed to take over. But Jesus in this parable is saying, I am the stronger man who has come into the world to destroy the devil and subdue the snake. So 1 John chapter 2, 9, 3, verse 8 says, For this reason Christ was revealed to destroy the works of the evil one. That's what he came to do, to crush the snake. But how does he do it? How does he crush this snake and cast him out of the garden once and for all? You know, Revelation twelve seven says, The great dragon was hurled down, That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. So how does Jesus do it? Well, the one who is perfectly pure, holy and righteous, shining brighter than the sun, he left the realms of glory and he entered into a world that was corrupt and unclean, full of darkness and demons. And what did he do while he was here? Well, he cleansed people who had leprosy. Think of the woman with the, the bleeding for 40 years. He cleansed those who are unclean. He cleansed people of their sins. He challenged religious hypocrisy and he called out corruption wherever he saw it. He shone a light into darkness and he even delivered people from demons. So full was he of power and love, and cleanliness, and light. Hebrews says he was tempted in every way, and yet without sin. He didn't let the snake in. He subdued the snake. John 1 says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not been able to overcome it. And so to wash us clean, because of all the things that we've allowed into our hearts and minds, the pollution and the corruption in our hearts, the one who is completely holy and pure and clean, so that he cleansed people everywhere, he became unclean for us on the cross, defiled, crucified, taking the punishment for our sins. You know what Hebrews says in chapter 13? It says, Jesus suffered outside the city gate. What's he talking about, Jesus? Why outside the city gate? What did you bring outside the city gate? Everything that was unclean, everything that was vile, everything that was corrupt. And that's where Jesus went. 
Why? Why did he go out outside the city gate? You see, the first Adam was supposed to kill the snake and to kick him out. But when the last Adam came to make things right, we'd become so corrupt and so unclean that what did we do? We killed him and kicked him out the city gate. But what was God doing? It says in Hebrews 13, he went and suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his blood. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's how God made all things new by drinking the poison and the corruption himself on the cross and then rising victoriously from the grave and then pouring out his spirit, the streams of living water upon his people so that anyone who is in Christ, it says in Revelation, they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. We're more than conquerors in Christ, the last Adam, the strong man who did what no one else could do. There's a story about a little girl called Liz. She was suffering from a a rare and serious blood disease and uh, the only way that she could recover was through a blood transfusion and it was from her five-year-old brother who had miraculously survived the same disease and through that had developed the antibodies necessary to fight off this disease. Uh, The doctor explained the situation to this little boy, uh, and asked him if he would be willing to donate blood to his sister. And the boy didn't hesitate for a second. He said, yes, I'll do it if it'll save her. As the transfusion progressed, uh, he lay in bed next to his sister and uh, he smiled as they all smiled, as the colour came back to his sister's face. And there were smiles all around until... This little boy's face grew pale and his smile faded. He, he looked up to the doctor and with a trembling voice he said, so will I begin to die straight away? The little boy had misunderstood what his doctors were saying. He thought that he had to donate all of his blood to death so that his sister could die. But he loved his sister so much that he was willing to die in her place. And that's just an illustration, brothers and sisters, of what God has done through Jesus to save us. That's why we sing, Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as a flood, when the prince of life our ransom shed his precious blood for us. Who his love will not remember? Who can cease to sing his praise? He shall never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. It goes on, On the mount of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above, and heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. And so some of the very last words of the Bible in Revelation 22 say, Come, 
All who are thirsty, come to the waters and drink. Amen. Amen. Come to the waters and drink. Let's sing together.